Okay, we're, uh, we're going to get started this evening, um, and I think I want to start off tonight by just telling you uh, just a little story that um, had a big impact on me in terms of my uh, life, uh, particularly in the topic of prayer. Uh, If you're like me, you've probably heard a thousand sermons on prayer, you know, and maybe you've read just as many books on it, right? I remember I was in college, and uh, I was in that position, you know, I was uh, at the Christian university hearing constantly how we need to pray, how we need to have the practice and discipline of prayer, um... I had been reading books, you know, by E.M. Bounds and various authors about the importance of prayer and and how I needed to grow in it and everything else like that. And, you know, just not much of it made any difference. And I would go and I would be praying with the different people in college, my classmates, you know, and we'd be praying together and we'd walk away um, and it's just like we were praying, but I wouldn't say I was growing in my prayer life. And I can, I know exactly the moment when all of a sudden I started, like, getting what prayer was about in terms of talking with God and just growing with Him in a relationship and intimacy with Him was when I had an internship out in uh, New Jersey, summer internship, a pastoral internship, and uh, that church was one of the few in America that still had prayer meeting consistently, and I remember showing up for prayer meeting, and they broke up into different groups, and I was put with this older gentleman that was, you know, I think he was 85 or something like that, and we all shared prayer requests, and I prayed, and the other person prayed, and all of a sudden that man prayed, and in the first 60 seconds, I learned more about prayer than I'd ever heard from any sermon or any book. Just hearing the prayers of a man who had walked with God for years. And I think we need those type of examples in our lives to help us grow in our own prayer life. And so I'm excited for the study on prayer that we're about to begin as a church because we're going to do exactly that. Um, We're going to start praying along with the Apostle Paul as a church, and we're going to grow as we learn from him how to approach God in prayer. And I am hoping that this will be a very beneficial study for you as it already is proving to be for me as I'm studying Paul's writings, um, but that's what I want us to do. I want us to sit with Paul on Wednesday nights and hear him pray and grow in our own prayer lives. So before we get started and I dive into the real introduction that I wanted to give this evening, <laughs> let's just pray and approach the Lord tonight. Father, we just thank you so much that this is a church that you have built. We thank you that that our foundation is Christ and no greater foundation can ever be laid. We thank you that upon that foundation 
this church stands as a pillar and support for the truth. We thank You, Father, that beyond even that, this is a structure that becomes the household that is the household of God. And just like any household, there is conversation that's at the heart of what it means to be a home is the conversations that happen over the dining room table and in the laundry room and in the kitchen. It's those conversations that let you know that you're in a home. Father, I pray that our church would be a true household of God because of the conversations that happen here from us with You. And so, Father, I pray that You would teach us to pray. Um, And I pray that as we pray along with the Apostle Paul, we would be taught by Christ through Paul's example. And you would grow us in our relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As all all of you know, we as a faith family recently uh, concluded our study of principles on prayer from the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. We began that study with the express purpose that uh, the disciples of Christ expressed in uh, Luke 11, verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us and make us people of prayer. And so with that goal in mind, if you remember, we followed Jesus' footprints through the Gospel of Luke. From before His birth to His ascension and departure into heaven, carefully examining every instance in which Jesus taught on the topic of prayer. Well, as you are well aware of, Jesus' teaching on prayer is not confined solely to the Gospel of Luke or even to the four Gospels. The entire New Testament is an expression and exposition of Christ's teaching to or through the Apostles. Jesus Himself said to the Apostles during the Last Supper in John 16, 12-14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In other words, when the Holy Spirit guided the apostles in writing down the inspired scriptures, what they wrote down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit were the teachings of Christ. Which, and this includes the apostles' teachings on prayer and no apostle wrote more about prayer than the apostle paul as i was examining the new testament in preparation for the study i discovered that there is not one single letter that paul ever wrote that does not contain either an example of a prayer or instruction to prayer from paul in fact out of the 2033 total verses that paul ever wrote in the new testament 167 or 166 of them at least have something to do with prayer. And I'm sure I've overlooked some. That means that Paul is either directly praying or directly talking about prayer one verse out of every 12 in his letters. This means that the size of Paul's writings on prayer are astonishing and the scope of his prayers are no less astonishing as well. As I've been studying his writings over the last several weeks, it's frankly overwhelming when I consider doing a study on Paul's prayers. Um, Paul teaches prayer on all aspects of life, from missions and ministry to the inner workings of joy and disappointment in a human's heart to rulers and powers that govern 
this universe. Nothing escapes the broad scope of Paul's prayers. Paul was a man that had truly been taught by Jesus to pray. He prayed in all circumstances, for all circumstances. He was a man uniquely qualified by Christ to teach us as believers to pray. And we should not be surprised by this because the book of Acts gives us some special insights into the unique way that God used prayer to shape and unfold Paul's redemptive life and experiences in Christ. And that's how I want to introduce our new study of praying with Paul tonight, by just going on a flyby tour of Paul's life as it's recorded in the book of Acts. We won't have time to land anywhere very long, but I just want us all to catch a very brief glimpse of how much God used prayer in the development of this most unique man, Paul, who reached almost the entire known world at that time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to see how God used prayer in the development of Paul's life and ministry so that we would understand how uniquely qualified he is to teach us how to pray as an emissary of Christ. And so in order to understand how Paul is uniquely qualified to teach us to pray, you have to understand first that the, that the prelude of Paul's redemptive life was prayer. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 What's interesting here is the very first time we read about Saul of Tarsus, about Paul, in Scripture, we discover alongside the person of Paul, we discover the presence of prayer. In Acts chapter 7, the very first Christian martyrdom is described in that chapter. The same Jewish leaders that killed Jesus, being filled with wrath, are now stoning Stephen, who is a spirit-filled, word-saturated, Christ-exalting, early deacon of the Jerusalem church. And at the end of Acts, and at the end of Acts 7:58, we're told the witnesses that were stoning Stephen laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now that means many things, but in short, it indicates that Saul, also named Paul was in complete agreement with the execution of Stephen and with what was going on. That's why verse 1 of chapter 8, you'll notice, says, and Saul approved of his execution. So Paul was in league with them. Indeed, we find out later in in verse 3 of chapter 8 that Paul leads an assault against the rest of the Christians in order to arrest and execute them as well. So Paul, at this moment, is a wholehearted enemy of Jesus Christ and of Christ's body, the church. As Paul testified later in Acts 22, verse 4, I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And yet what we discover in Acts 7, alongside the person of Paul being presented, is the presence of prayer immediately following. Because look at the next two verses in Acts chapter 7. It says, And they were, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. See, even before Paul's conversion, we discover alongside his person the presence of prayer. Stephen prays nearly the same prayer that Jesus prayed in Luke 22, verse 34. Father, forgive them. And the effect of Stephen's prayer is nearly the same as Jesus's as well. Just like Jesus's prayer in Luke 22 led to the forgiveness of many individuals that were around him 
as he was hanging on the cross, so Stephen's prayer would lead to the forgiveness of the very man who stood there overseeing his death. From the very first time he's mentioned, we find the presence of prayer alongside the person of Paul. So the prelude of Paul's redemptive life was prayer. Second, I want you to see that the pivot of Paul's redemptive life was prayer. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. I don't need to make a big point out of this for tonight, but Paul's conversion moment was not brought about by proxy through another believer. Paul's conversion is pretty unique, very unique, utterly unique. Paul is converted through a direct conversation with the risen Lord. Acts 9, 3 through 4, or 3 through 5 tells us that Paul was approaching Damascus to arrest the followers of Christ, and suddenly a light shone from heaven around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I love that. Paul was so stubborn of a person that Jesus literally knocks him to the ground and blinds him with his glory so that Paul might turn and believe. We hear a lot of testimonies on Sunday. We heard a lot of testimonies on Sunday, but none of them were like that. A direct back and forth conversation with the risen Lord. Literally the pivot moment that changed Paul's life forever was prayer. The prelude to Paul's redemptive life was prayer. The pivot of Paul's redemptive life was prayer. Next, I want you to see the preparation of Paul's redemptive life was prayer. So, we just read there in Acts chapter 9 that Jesus strikes Paul blind and then he tells him to go into Damascus, the city he was going to arrest the Christians at. He says, go into the city and you're going to find out what you're supposed to do. And, so what, and that's exactly what happens. We find out in the next few verses that the people that are with Paul lead him by the hand into Damascus. And verse 9 of chapter 9 says, And for three days he was, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So you know what that means? If he's not eating or drinking, no one's giving him any food. No, he's fasting. That's what he's doing. He's fasting. Being in the dark physically, he is taking this moment after he's just had that experience to seek the light spiritually. He was doing some serious soul searching. Doubtless all those scriptures that he had read and memorized throughout his life as a Pharisee of Pharisees about the Messiah, he was now working through in the darkness of his own physical eyes. And I want you to see see here that he was working through that by by prayer. Look at verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And based on context, I want you to just stop and picture this for a moment. What was Ananias probably doing at this moment? He was probably hiding from a guy named Saul that was going to arrest him and and attempt to murder him for being a follower of Christ, right? So as Ananias is fearful for his life because of the coming of Saul that he had probably heard about, the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. Okay. And at the house of Judas. Okay. Look for a man of Tarsus. Uh Uh-oh. Named Saul. Really? (laughs) Of all people? But look at the next phrase. For behold, he is what? Praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias who would come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. The story goes on from there of Ananias says, you want me to run that, you want to run that by me again, Lord? Right? Who do you want me to go see? You sure about that? 
And then he goes and he heals Saul. And Saul, becoming healed, truly believes that Jesus is the Christ and is baptized. But notice, what was Paul doing for those three days alone in darkness? He was praying. He was praying. The time of his preparation was spent in prayer. And then it's implied later from Galatians and elsewhere that Paul goes off into the deserts of Arabia and he's personally taught by the Lord Jesus Christ over a period of three years as well. So the prelude of Paul's redemptive life is what? It's prayer. The pivot of Paul's life, redemptive life, is what? It's prayer. The preparation of Paul's redemptive life is what? It's prayer. And finally, I want you to see, and this is where we're really going to have to go fast, the path of Paul's redemptive life was prayer. You watch his life from here on out in the book of Acts, and you keep on seeing prayer oozing out of him in every situation and circumstance. You'll see the presence of prayer all over the place, wherever you see the person of Paul. In Acts chapter 13, in Acts chapter 13, Paul uh, is set apart for the lifetime of, of uh, a lifelong, full-time gospel ministry that God had appointed to him by the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit makes it clear in the middle of a prayer meeting that this is what Paul was supposed to do. Paul's whole life of ministry, do you realize, began with prayer. And then, in verse 3 of chapter 13, the church in Antioch commissions Paul for that work by laying their hands on him in fasting and prayer. So Paul's ministry began with a focus on prayer. In the next chapter, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read that Paul, as he would finish one of his church planning efforts and move on to another field of ministry, he would always do so by committing the newly appointed elders of the church to the Lord, as verse 23 of chapter 14 says, with much prayer and fasting. So just think about that. Paul made sure other church leaders' ministries began in the same way that his did, with a focus on prayer, an emphasis on prayer. Then just a page over, in Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 16, we learn from his experiences in Philippi that Paul would always begin his new evangelistic work in a town by going first to the place, this is quoted, the place of prayer. Isn't that fascinating? Paul would begin his ministry in focused prayer, and he would end his ministry in focused prayer. So he would start and he would end his ministry the same way he wanted to fulfill his ministry, with a constant focus on and spirit of continual prayer, worship, and petition to God. Later on in that chapter, in chapter 16, verse 25, Paul with his companion Silas has been stripped, and they've been beaten with many rods, likely stretched out into positions of torture in prison. I've been told that we as humans are like tea bags. You place us in hot water, you find out what's inside of us, right? Well, what happens when Paul's placed in hot water here? What comes leaching out of him? Acts 16, 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were listening to this, praying and singing hymns to God, and the rest of the prisoners were listening to them. See, prayer... And communion with God in prayer was such a vital aspect of Paul's walk with God that when he bled, what literally came out of him was prayer. Just a few chapters later in Acts 20, verse 36, as Paul concludes a three-year pastorate in Ephesus and he's leaving the church, we're told that before Paul said his final goodbyes to the Ephesians, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. He knew that the ministry challenges before them and him would be tough and he knew that the only one that could help them would be God, and so he prayed. The very next chapter after that, actually, at 21, verse 5, we read of Paul kneeling down on the beach and praying during one of his journeys. 
In the chapter after that, in Acts 22, verse 17, we read that once Paul returned to Jerusalem, he was praying in the temple when God spoke to him in a trance. And finally, in the last chapter of Acts, in Acts 28, verse 8, we read of Paul praying again, this time while healing the father of Malta's governor. And throughout, throughout the book of Acts, we see that Paul not only preached prayer, he practiced it. He practiced it. He lived it. For Paul, his life was an effort to fulfill the call of God in his life, and that meant constantly seeking God's will in expressions of prayer minute by minute and day by day. And the result of such a focused life is a literal treasure trove of lessons from his writings on prayer. And what I'm wanting to do over these next few months is to go into those minds together with you and pull out as many of those rich lessons as possible.